0: One that we all love and talk about every single day. Uh-huh. 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 To be able to bring uh-huh. people together at the center of an NBA investigation into tampering accusations. Yeah, and the message to the executive in the league is stop talking about players on other teams. What did I do? The, the charges filed. Impermissible contact. It right or wrong? Tampering charges are really difficult to prove. You know me, I talk. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of awkward to even talk about it. I can't even mention teams anymore. Ask me what I like to play with Cameron Durant. The trial you want your one with tampering. They're always ahead of the It's Is that what i have tamper with the guys. I didn't tamper. I'm just telling
1: That's you what happened. I'm just telling you what happened.
0: Hello and welcome to the Tampering Podcast at The Athletic. As always, I'm Sam Amick, NBA reporter at The Athletic. And yet again, we're coming to you without hoops. Yet again, we're coming to you with a lay of the land that is unprecedented, incredibly unique. Uh, And so we have been pushing ourselves here on the show to try to open up new avenues for conversation. And today, to help us along those lines, we have Dr. Angela Rasmussen, virologist from Columbia, was nice enough to join us. Shout out to John Drazen, a friend of mine who helped connect us to, to have this conversation. Angela, how are you? I, I can see how you are from the scenery behind you, but how are you doing?
1: I'm wonderful, Sam. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: No, of course. Of course. Like we were just talking about off air. Here's the breakdown and the lay of the land, it, like what I was hoping to accomplish on the show. Uh, for one, you're making my job a little easier because I know you're a sports fan and you're a, a Seattle Seahawks season ticket holder huge NFL fan, somebody who has an awareness in the sporting ranks, which honestly for our audience, I think is important to make it clear right out of the gate, you're obviously not a sports hater. You're not somebody who's trying to come in and and ruin the party, so to speak, but these are dangerous times. And the coronavirus continues to just run roughshod through our country. The numbers um, are not declining and it's very, very scary stuff. And the NBA, as you know, is on track to head to Orlando In mid-July and I know uh, again for the listeners before Angela and I you know connected here I had sent her the 113 page memo from the NBA the health and uh, and medical protocols that I don't know what the final tally was in terms of word count but it is a monstrous document that takes you through what they're hoping to do in Orlando to protect players to protect staff uh, everybody involved to be honest it'll very possibly be myself on the inside of that bubble mid-July to mid-October playing basketball for the purposes of like let's not be naive let's be adults in the room here for the purposes of of saving and recouping a huge amount of revenue that would otherwise be lost and this is their business and I get that Angela but I wanted today to come from your angle just on the medical side and, and the health side so uh, it's a long introduction to bring you in but you know, you got a chance to see the memo you new stuff even before that. What are your general thoughts about what they're trying to pull off here.
1: I mean, I think that it is really difficult um, to say how this is going to work because we really are an uncharted territory. Um, right. You know, there's, there's no scientific consensus on what the right way to do this is because we've actually never done something like this um, for really any industry Um, and that, you know, that applies to academic research as well. Um, There's, I'm currently hearing about all kinds of debates about how we can safely reopen campuses. um, Should we reopen campuses for school, things like that. So a lot of this is really watching and experiments unfold really before our eyes. Um, One thing that struck me about the memo was that it, it, as you pointed out, it is exhaustive. It yeah. is 113 pages. Um, and uh, I, you know, looked through it. Um, it's hard to retain all of the sure. things that um, are being put in place. Um, and I think that for the most part, you know, it, it's a relief to me to see that, the NBA has clearly thought a lot about this, about trying to do this as safely as possible. Um, some of the precautions may be overkill, um, but you know, at. At what point do we decide that it, something is overkill or it isn't? Um, there's right. still a great deal that we actually don't know about this virus. And I know that we've been uh, consumed in the media in general with coronavirus, coronavirus, coronavirus for the last six months. Um, it's hard, I think, sometimes for people to understand that we actually don't know a lot more than than that which we do. Um, but we do know a few things, and I, I was glad to see that the NBA's plan um, really addresses those things that we do know, and does appear to be based on the evidence that we have. It, it was really good to see that you know there's such a heavy emphasis placed on testing and tracing. That is one thing that we do know um, works very well, uh, and we've known that you know really through the the history of modern public health. Um, we know that when somebody is infected with something you can only detect that by testing them and it's helpful to test them as early as possible um, before they have an opportunity to transmit the virus to others. We right. know that when you isolate them and then contact trace and quarantine the people who've been in contact with the infected person, um, that is a really great and effective way of breaking these chains of community transmission. I mean, really, we need to be able to implement something like the NBA's plan on a national scale to a right. certain degree. Right. Um, But I was, you know, it's hard to say if it will work and uh, it could be disastrous if um, a large number of players end up testing positive. I actually know, um, so I know Nate Grubaugh, who uh, is, he developed the saliva test um, that I believe the NBA is using. Okay. Um, He's at Yale. Uh, I don't know that they've announced that, but I've heard.
0: What's the status of the saliva test right now in terms of its use?
1: So um, they are getting. I don't know if they've already gotten it. They maybe, they may have already gotten it because the standards to get um, an emergency use authorization from the FDA are are quite low, especially for this pandemic. Um, but they released a preprint a while back, and their um, their saliva test is actually more sensitive than the nasopharyngeal swab test that is right. being used um, right. so and it's certainly easier to collect the samples because you right. basically spit tube as opposed to having like yes you know a really yeah. long q-tip shoved up your nose into your brain right um but uh i think that it makes a lot of sense to use that both because of the increased sensitivity and the ease of sample collection for something like the nba um and really this will be another example of uh how this could be useful um because yeah. that's certainly use of that test frequently among mm-hmm. a lot of people, um, especially when contact tracing will be made much easier for any infections that do occur within the bubble. Um, I think it it could really provide a lot of information about how eff- effective that test is uh, at, you know, in a population over a long period of time. It would tell us a lot about sensitivity and might be helpful, especially because there's so many different types of tests out there. Yeah. Um, and one is not necessarily comparable to the other. So um, I think at the very least that, that will provide good like assay validation data.
0: Sure. What's the, uh, out of curiosity, what's the turnaround time on the saliva test? A couple hours,
1: I think. yeah and uh, I'm also friends with one of the technicians working on that project, so she's developed and her colleagues have developed a method for rapid RNA extraction. Okay. Um, so they they've tried to shave off as much time like for processing the samples and then actually doing the PCR test. But I think it's a it's a pretty quick turnaround. I mean, it's not like a rapid five minute test. It's not like a you know pre- COVID pregnancy test, but right. Um, right. Does take a couple hours but it, it is a pretty quick turnaround and you can do it um, in a high throughput way
0: well and like you said too, the the issue of how easy or hard the test is i mean that was a major sticking point for the players because if they're going to get tested every day they didn't want you know the, the q-tip up the brain mm-hmm. approach which looks absolutely miserable
1: Yeah, it does. And honestly, I don't know that you could justify doing that for something like um, professional basketball. I think that it would actually be, you could eventually um, cause a lot of problems. The other thing is with the NP tests, if you suspect that somebody has COVID, the person collecting the sample has to be wearing full PPE. So they need to have at least goggles, like a gown, um, uh, an N95 or a PAPR, which is basically like a powered N95. Um, And with the saliva tests, people can collect it themselves. So you don't need, there's no, you know, NP swab uh, availability is a rate limiting factor. PPE availability is a rate limiting factor. You can just have people basically spit in a tube. Um, right, And so I think that that makes it much more feasible to do testing like this, um, especially for something that's, even though it is a necessary business, really, as you pointed out, um, is thought of as many people as like, you know, entertainment.
0: Oh, it is. Yeah, no, for sure.
1: It's not possible to completely eliminate the risk. Um, right. There will be press and uh, staff um, at Disney world who will be coming into that bubble and potentially going out of it. Um, and you know, those risks are really unknown, but I was overall pleased with how much attention had been paid to minimizing those risks as much as possible, because that's really all we can do.
0: Which, to be honest, is good to hear. It's funny for me, Angela, because typically when you cover the league, you know, we don't root for teams, we don't root for players. Then you run into something like this and you're, you're rooting for humanity, you're rooting for health. You know what I mean? Like, I keep exactly. writing, like I wrote something a few weeks ago that once the cases in Orange County near Orlando were actually at that time pretty low. And I wrote a, some of the basketball context and I, and I wrote in this column about how strange it felt to write about basketball again because it just still doesn't seem very important. And lo and behold, since that column came out, you know, Orange County has increased a great deal uh, since then around the league. I talked to some general managers today and there is some growing concern not necessarily about the specific cases out there, but just, you already alluded to it, the potential for disaster on the inside. And, and let's start with this to you know, dive in a little bit deeper. The game itself and the, the inherent, like unavoidable style of basketball is for me what is front and center because I, there's, there's a bunch of other avenues we can get into, but when you get on that court and you've got 10 grown men who are sweating, sharing a ball, Um, Are they trash talking? Are they? And even you actually tweeted an article the other day, I think it was from the New Republic that I read talking about the aerosolized um, concerns of the coronavirus and how the simple act of speaking they're now learning is, you know, it could hang in the air for minutes at a time. It feels like there, there probably couldn't be a more dangerous activity than hoops when you put all those things together. How do you see the actual event and the sports component?
1: Yeah, I mean, that is really the riskiest part. And when talking about reopening professional sports in general, um, a lot of that really depends on the sport. So something like the NBA um, or the NFL, where you have players uh, loud, you know, loudly talking, breathing heavily, um, in very close contact, uh, that is a risk that you really can't minimize. Because I, I just don't think it's practical to have players you know, playing with masks on, um, right. you you can't really do that. I mean, maybe in the NFL, you could use face shields um, on their helmets or something, but even that uh, is not going to completely, again, eliminate the risk. Right. Um, where something like golf um, or baseball, you know, those sports, um, which are done outside, uh, there's more opportunity for physical distancing. There's less opportunity for um, vocalizing, loudly or um vocalizing in very close proximity to somebody else's face right um some of those sports are probably going to be lower risk so even though they can also um minimize risk but not completely eliminate it you know it might be safer to play baseball for example assuming that people aren't like crowding in the dugout and spitting all the time than it would be to to be playing basketball um or football but that said, I mean, what they're, I think, what the NBA's plan is trying to do is really minimize all the other risk of the players getting infected in the first place. So, sure. if the players are not getting infected, which um, if they're not able to go out into the community, um, that risk of them getting exposed and infected in the first place is going to be low. Right. Then you know it's not unsafe if everybody's negative um, to be on the court all at the same time. Right. I guess one of this though is one of the sort of things that i raised an eyebrow about um in terms of uh the staff at those disney resorts are um in part like monitoring themselves for symptoms yeah. and one thing that we actually know about sars coronavirus 2 that has become pretty clear is that a lot of new cases are driven by pre-symptomatic transmission so transmission by people who aren't aware that they're sick right and especially early on in infection um when you have low levels of virus replicating, you may or may not be able to detect that um, with the PCR test, especially if you're right down at the limit of detection of the assay. So um, it, you know, by minimizing the opportunity for the players to become infected, that makes the sport itself much safer. But there are still some big caveats that I think the NBA has addressed as well as they can. Um, but I'm not sure that those can ever be minimized uh, to the level where it would be truly safe. So it is, um, you know, I think it's a good plan. It's reasonable uh, trying to balance the needs that, uh, you know, this is a big business that employs a lot of people and we can't um, be on just like indefinite lockdown forever, but um, there is, it's not a completely safe plan. And I don't know that there is a completely safe plan.
0: I mean, to me, that element that you're hitting on is is universal. I think about you and and you know, you're a research scientist at Columbia, and you guys, I'm sure, are having the same debate. At what point do we possibly return to the classroom? Uh, you know, and you're weighing the benefits of that and the damage being done to 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 what you do for a living and in the classroom versus uh, the the health of it. Even for us, this is such a a weird conversation to have in the media because I work at a sports-only website. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist, no pun intended, to, to know that it's terrible for us if the sports don't come back at some point. Um, you know, the, you kind of alluded to the, the, the employee component that's within this memo is, is raised a lot of eyebrows and concerns, and you know, I'm with you on the fact that everybody, I think, agrees you can't just cut, it's not a bubble, it's, it's not, you know, the definition of a bubble. You have individuals who will be free to come and go who are not being tested and who are leaving that controlled environment. Um, and the Disney column cast characters, you know, the employees who will be cleaning hotel rooms, some of the employees who will be serving food um, and, and doing these essential services, some of them are gonna be coming and going. How did that specific part land when you saw it?
1: Yeah, to me, that is really one of the biggest risks um, yeah. involved in this um, because those, those people will not have the same access to testing, they won't have the same access and ability to isolate themselves um, the way that the NBA players are. Now they have taken a lot of sensible measures to really reduce exposure to those individuals and to make it as safe as possible. So masking, um, very, very conscious, um, very detailed rules about physical distancing. Um, But ultimately you are always going to have some degree of risk uh, whenever you're coming into contact with anybody who's outside that um, so-called bubble, right. it's really more like what we would call a semi-permeable membrane in science. <laughs> um,
0: so some I, you beat me go, to it. I was coming with that next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Some things can go in and out. Um, some things can't. Uh, yeah. One of the real risks, though, about that is that, um, and this really kind of gets to the issue. So they can test all the time. Um, they can they can test up. the players and and nba staff so um so much that they are really detecting cases as early as possible but there's still maybe cases that are not detected by testing you can't be testing people you know every hour 24 hours a day um that's not practical so there may be a point where a player becomes infected through contact with people who are kind of going in and out of the bubble. Um, The real danger there is that that person won't be, that infection will not be detected until they've had an opportunity to interact with lots of other people inside the bubble. And, you know, that certainly um, is a big risk of this type of approach because um, while they, they do have a very sensible um, plan for isolating players uh, and they have taken precautions to minimize contact between people within that um, there still is the opportunity for this closed system uh, to sort of amplify an individual infection, um, especially if there 's a game um, right. being played uh, before that that person is identified as infected so um, I think that is one of the biggest risks of the plan, but i don 't know how you would mitigate it beyond what they 've already done I, I just don 't think it 's feasible to to isolate all of those. Um, staff like the cast and crew, I guess of the disney resorts um, you can't you can't put all of the hotel workers up in the hotel also and expect them right. not to be going back to their families right. things like that so um, I think you know they've they've done as much as they can, but th- that still is a risk that could potentially be um, disastrous, and ultimately that would I think would be very damaging for the NBA, too. sure,
0: sure, no, I agree do you have much and it's fine if you don't but do you have, do you have much knowledge of the wearable rings that that were also discussed in that memo that, you know, my layman's understanding of it was that they would be constantly monitoring things like heart rate and, and other, you know, just physiological elements that, that would be able to tip you off early uh, that, that you might be in trouble and, and might be infected. So those,
1: these like Oro smart rings. Right. Um, yeah.
0: That the players are not from what I hear thrilled about. Cause they, there's a, there's a privacy issue there that some of them are concerned about. Um, but before we even get to that, yeah, I mean, how do you see those?
1: Yeah, I think that they're very unproven. Um, I think that they're a great example of tech that makes big claims. Um, I have not seen any evidence that uh, those claims are verified. Um, That they they really haven't shown anything to back up the claims that they're making um, with actual science showing that, for example, you can predict who's going to be infected or detect an infected person three days before they become symptomatic um, or they test positive. I'm not entirely sure how that technology would even work. Um, And we don't really, I mean, how do you tell using a smart ring um, if somebody is completely asymptomatic, if they haven't developed any symptoms yet, I don't see how you could detect um, using like that type of technology. I don't think you could, detect more sensitively than a PCR test would. Right, right. Um, That looks directly for the virus. So I'm very skeptical about those, um, in addition to having concerns about the privacy issues that you mentioned.
0: Sure, sure. I wanted to hit the rewind button for me real quick, and I wanted to do a combination of, of kind of you telling your story a little more, but also like specifically when it comes to this coronavirus, I wonder when did it first cross your desk? Um, and, and it's interesting you know with your background in Seattle for me personally it, it was kind of going full circle because when I started covering this story uh, we had a large piece at, on our website about Quinn Snyder the Utah Jazz head coach who is from Seattle and he has a brother who has a, a shop right in the middle of Pike Place Market and before the NBA even began really trying to figure out what was happening with the coronavirus Quinn, because he had folks in Seattle who were starting to see very early what it was doing to their community, went on a fact-finding mission of his own and to his credit, I think helped his one in particular team get ahead of the curve. But, you know, I think a lot of folks nationwide have already kind of forgotten how Seattle was the epicenter of this thing early on. Uh, And so for you and your community, uh, I'm imagining that you were studying this thing far in advance of that. But when did it first cross your desk and what sort of work have you been doing on it since then?
1: Right. So um, I, like many people um, in my field, subscribe to this email list called ProMed Mail that um, alerts people of uh, new emerging diseases. Um, since that's what I work on, I study emerging viruses. And yeah. uh, so on in late December, um, ProMed Mail came out with these reports of, you know, atypical uh, or a, a very high number of this, this weird pneumonia um, in China. And then, you know, it was kind of on everybody's radar. By the second week of January, uh, scientists in Wuhan um, released the sequence of the genome of the virus. Um, and it's actually, you know, it's I think it's a, actually a really lucky coincidence that it did emerge in Wuhan because there is a world-class Virology Research Institute there. And they had the, the instruments and the capability and the knowledge to generate this data really quickly. With that sequence data, we were able to identify that it was a novel coronavirus. Um, and so really through January and February, I was just watching it. I mean, we, um, I was commuting back and forth prior to this pandemic between my, my home in New York, um, where I work and my home in Seattle, where my family lives. Um, and I went back and forth between New York and Seattle twice. Um, one time I came through SeaTac uh, two days after the first patient who is identified to have come from Wuhan to Seattle, um, came, passed through that airport. Um, But in general, up until late February, I was really not very concerned um, because at that point, it really looked like the virus was contained within China. Um, We only had a handful of cases here in the U.S. Um, there was no evidence of you know widespread community transmission but then when those other cases in the Seattle area um, were reported the last weekend of February and the sequence analysis suggested that community transmission had been occurring for some time that was the moment where I started to get really worried Um, and I went uh, back to Seattle um, March 3rd uh, went to Hawaii with my husband and my parents on March 5th for a week by the time I got back from Hawaii, um, I decided that it looked like we were headed for a lockdown, which we were. <laughs> um, and I decided that I would stay in Seattle uh, for the duration, and that's where I've been ever since. And at the time, my reasoning was that it would be irresponsible of me as a public health professional to go from the hotspot at the time, Seattle, to a place where there weren't any cases, New York City. Um, And over time, that reversed. um, And now it looks like the hotspots are in other areas. But what really is important, I think, for people to to recognize is that everywhere is still a potential hotspot. Because most people are still not exposed to this virus. They're susceptible to it. Um, And there is still, even in both in Seattle and New York, um, there is still a a level of community transmission that's occurring. We haven't eradicated it from everywhere. And that really has been one of the big challenges about communicating um, with the public uh, about what flattening the curve means. It doesn't Mm -hmm. actually mean we get rid of the virus. So, During this time also, uh, most of my work up until now has been on Ebola virus. I've also done a lot of work on MERS coronavirus, so I started seeking out funding um, to start doing work on SARS coronavirus 2 and with my collaborators um, who are with the NIH, but they work in a laboratory, a high containment laboratory in Montana, um, I have gotten samples from monkeys that were experimentally infected with SARS coronavirus two, and uh, I just got the data back um, last week so i 'm in the process of analyzing that and surely i 'll have my own preprint uh, study out sure. hopefully very soon.
0: What is it from the human standpoint? This is what you do, and i I, I imagine there 's some mixed emotions when it comes to this sort of experience being you know the time for folks in your community to step up and 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 use their talents, you know what I mean. But it also comes with, with a cost that is that is devastating. There's that part of you, just as a member of society, that certainly doesn't want to see that. Is 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 some of that tough to reconcile?
1: It is, um, because obviously, you know, I'm a I'm a human being as well as a scientist, and I, you know, it sucks to be quarantined. Um, even though like right now it doesn't look like it because yeah, I'm yeah. in a beautiful place, but it's been it's been difficult for my family and for me just like it has been for everybody else um, I know many other people are facing really severe economic consequences of the public health measures that have been taken and you know this it's it's not good um, the consequences that we're really all gonna pay as a society both in terms of lives lost in terms of you know economic uh, downturns possibly a depression um, it It's all very bad. Um, From a scientific point of view though, uh, it's very interesting virus. Um, So one of the things that has constantly surprised me and what what I specifically study with regards to these emerging viruses is the role of the host's response to infection um, in the process of pathogenesis, which is the process by which a virus causes disease. Um, And one thing that has just been really striking is that this virus seems to Affect people very differently from person to person. Um, There are many different types of covid 19 disease that we've seen in some people, you know, there, there's the classical pneumonia. um, There's mild or even asymptomatic infection. There are these weird neurological things, um, such as the loss of the sense of smell. Right. Um, there are these issues with blood clotting that have been reported and potential cardiac issues. Um, people have also reported issues with uh, liver and kidney function. So it's really unusual for a virus to affect people in that many different ways. Right. It's not particularly unusual for a highly pathogenic virus to be more pathogenic in some people than others or to have different disease presentations. Um, Ebola, which I study, uh, also does that In some people, they, you know, recover and survive and some people have hemorrhagic disease and some people have uh, severe gastrointestinal disease. But it is unusual for a virus to um, be as transmissible as this one and have such a huge range of different presentations in people. Um, so from my point of view, I mean, I think that you could make a career studying probably just this virus, right. um, but there's really a lot that needs to be discovered about it. And while that uh, bothers me as a human, I mean, I wish we had more effective interventions, more that we could do uh, to, to stop this virus. Um, it's, it's really a very exciting time to be a virologist and to study a virus like this um, sort of in real time.
0: To hear you break down the symptoms and how unpredictable they have been makes me think back to the beginning of when the public started learning about this and to be honest with you. So, I just a quick story for you, late February, I had a work trip to New York from Sacramento, California and made the trip and on the middle of the trip, I started not feeling well and when I got to New York, I felt bad enough that I made a choice to not go see anybody within my company and to their credit they let me get bed you know get uh, better in bed in a hotel room for a few days before i flew home but i remember at that time that it the at least what the media was being told from the medical community was some sense of well here are the three or four symptoms that you will have and if you don't have them you don't have it that there was some level of uh, clarity that folks were determining oh well that must not be what i have and, and i feel like looking back on it do you think that muddied the waters and made things even more confusing just because it took everybody a while to figure out how unpredictable this thing was
1: i think so i mean this one of the biggest problems that we've had um are that people the messaging has been really bad um by especially by public health officials because some things like that have been stated very you know unequivocally um that these are these symptoms and if you don't have this you don't have covid uh and that's clearly not true and some people have no symptoms at all um, we, we are still appreciating the, the real range of disease presentations. So I think it's always a mistake. And I think it's a mistake in general to be very certain about anything, um, sure. especially a brand new virus. We As scientists, we're trained to deal with uncertainty. Uh, the public is not necessarily um, trained in that way. Uh, right. and, and people tend to think of things as very binary when in reality, they're usually more continuous. Um, they're not black and white, they're gray uh, or different shades of gray. And that's the, the kind of messaging we should have been getting out to people. We should have right. been getting out the, the message to protect yourself. And I think some for to some degree that was successful in encouraging people to use good hand hygiene, flatten the curve, all of that. Um, unfortunately, uh, and this goes really up to political leadership, um, this has, Become very politicized, and yep. I've never really been in a situation where something like wearing a mask um, or, you know, isolation and quarantine or testing and tracing are political issues. Um, right. Where, you know, there's real resistance to public health measures that could actually be helpful um, because people think that you know, they they are politically charged issues. And so that has been a real problem. And I would say that this entire pandemic, um, you know, obviously the the U.S. is number one in the world in coronavirus cases, and it doesn't look like that's changing anytime soon. Um, And it's largely because the messaging has been so confusing to
0: people. I was going to ask, I mean, your professional opinion on why it is that we have emerged as, you know, all by ourselves Uh, after as you remember I mean early on it was it was Italy it was China and and we were looking across the pond so to speak saying well boy it's really bad over there and next thing you know we're at the top of the list and it's not even close
1: well and and people were saying you know when Italy and Spain really started to peak like this is going to be us in two weeks Um, and that's exactly what happened except unlike Italy and Spain we you know haphazardly applied some of these mitigation measures, and we still don't have adequate testing capacity in most of the country. Um, in many states, uh, again, depending on sort of the, the political um, leanings of their leadership, we may never have enough testing. I mean, on, on Saturday, President Trump said that he wanted people to slow down testing, um, which is absolutely the wrong thing to do if you're hoping to get this under control. Don't Um,
0: worry. They said later he was kidding. So he just said, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, (laughs) it goes without saying that you probably shouldn't joke about public health practices, um, especially when people are likely to follow the president's advice. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I think that, you know, we are not looking at um, being able to, 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 point to ourselves as a a success story um, anytime soon, uh, the way that some other countries have. So South Korea, they've tested exhaustively. Um, And one, you know, here's an example of something that would probably never happen here. One guy went out to a bunch of nightclubs, um, was found to have had coronavirus. It was a super spreader event, and he ended up infecting like over 200 people in order to find all 200 of those people, they had to test 80,000 people Ooh, um, wow. who were possible contacts. So we are not able to do anything like that, um, especially right. if we are even joking about uh, slowing down testing or decreasing testing capacity. No, um, I, and I
0: couldn't agree more, sorry to jump in. I yeah. mentioned masks a couple times and, ha- and that's, that is the thing that has become politicized. Um, and this is officially now we're segueing from, we're going to intersect NBA and regular life, right? So now this is just the, the society component, but we're all living it. I had a neighbor just the other day in my neck of the woods who pulled the old like, you know, I don't want to wear a mask, go ahead and make me type card. And you're just sitting there shaking your head. And there's a lot of that. And uh, but, but tell us the science, uh, because I know it's evolved a little bit where where folks are trying to figure out To what degree the mask was uh, helpful when folks are putting them on? Uh, We shouldn't have to keep drilling this point, but you know, uh, probably no harm in drilling it anyway. How do you see the 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 role the mask plays here?
1: So I think um, masks are they have been a difficult topic to discuss even among the scientific community. Um, There is still not very good evidence. Um, about how effective they are at population scale. A lot of the evidence is really correlative um, or it's based on modeling um, and it's some of it is based on these studies, you know, looking at droplet dispersion when you're wearing a mask versus not, but they don't really address the virology, um, which is also an issue. So the data is the overall data to support mask wearing is somewhat weak. That said, um, it's clear that wearing masks uh, does a lot to protect, Others at least by reducing the number of droplets. And you can just really think of this as a probability issue, right? So if you are putting out a bunch of different respiratory droplets of different sizes every time you speak or breathe or shout or whatever, um, those are going to stay in the air for different amounts of time, and they're going to be affected by temperature and humidity and wind and sunlight and all of these things. Um, But the more that you are putting out there, the more potential droplets containing virus there are. Um, if you can reduce the number of droplets that you're putting out, that's going to reduce the number of potentially virus-containing droplets you're putting out, right. and that right. should reduce the risk of others in your vicinity. It doesn't right. eliminate it, and it doesn't protect the wearer unless you're wearing an N95 mask. And by the way, the 95 and N95 means that it's 95% protective. It's not completely protective for the person wearing that. one of those either. Yeah. Um, but uh
0: what you is know, the if you're if you're if you're advising one mask over all all the rest that is you know available to the public, which one would that be?
1: I mean, I think that any kind of surgical or cloth mask for the public um, because when we're talking about this we're not talking about the public putting on PPE yeah. um, people can wear face shields and that might reduce their risk of mucosal exposure, but really what we're talking about is minimizing the risk to others so overall decreasing the number of respiratory droplets so in that sense any kind of mask will um, reduce the overall number of respiratory droplets that you're producing now um, one of my concerns with masks has always been that people put on a mask they put on gloves and they think they are protected by this magical shield um, and that's not the case and so one of my biggest concerns um, is that people don't really understand how this is working Um, They either think that the masks are protective or they, um, in the case of your neighbor, um, think that they're not protective at all. And they're just, you know, something that is like a liberal conspiracy or whatever to impose on people's freedoms. And the truth is they're neither. Um, They're one measure among several, including physical distancing, minimizing crowds, um, staying out of crowds and and really trying to minimize trips uh, that are unnecessary. Um, it's one measure among those that can be used to reduce transmission at the population level. Right. Um, I also see a lot of people wearing masks, uh, pulling them down. I've seen people cut holes in the masks uh, to expose their nose and mouth. Um, yep. That yep. basically, you might as well not wear a mask if you're right. gonna do that. Right. Um, and so I think that because it has been so politicized at this point, it's very difficult to try to educate mm-hmm. people on how these masks are supposed to work, and to get everybody to adopt them. Um, right. And again, you know, when the president is actively discouraging people from wearing masks uh, and sort of stoking the, the flames, um, the hyperpartisan sort of flames about whether you should wear a mask or not, it has become this contentious issue that it really didn't need to be. And I think we're going to have a very difficult time getting people to to rethink masks and have everybody get on board with them.
0: Sure. Spin it forward for me a little bit. What what are you thinking about the future? And specifically, we have the, you know, the the elephant in the room question of, of a vaccine and when that might come down the road. But even before then, like the part that certainly impacts the NBA is that we're focused right now on these playoffs finishing this season. But before you know it, it'll be mid-December, and they are hoping to start next season with no fans and, and moving forward in this uncertain territory where, you know, that – Heart certainly would have no vaccine, uh, but, but, you know, I guess give me the macro view a little bit about where you think we're going here.
1: Well, I think for the NBA specifically, um, whether they're able to start the next season, you know, in mid December uh, with no fans um, I think really depends on how this little experiment goes. Yeah. Uh, um, I would imagine that if there is a big outbreak among NBA players and especially if it's, um, you know, marquee big name players that are, uh impacted by this, that will probably have a huge effect on whether or not the NBA proceeds with uh, season fans or not. Um, I think that, you know, it's really a, a big part of this is like, when are we going to develop a vaccine? And, you know, hopefully that would be as soon as possible, basically by the end of next year. But there's every possibility that it might not be. And so here's some of the issues with with developing a vaccine and what needs to be done. Because a lot of people don't really understand um, the process of doing clinical trials for vaccines. So phase three clinical trial um, that is needed before you put a vaccine out to the public. At this point, you've already gone through trials to confirm that the vaccine is safe. Um, But you need to know that it works and that it works in the majority of people that get it. So the only way to do that um, is to vaccinate a bunch of people, uh, have another control group that is getting, usually they don't not vaccinate them, but they usually give them a different vaccine, like a vaccine for measles that they've already had.
0: Okay.
1: Um, And follow those people over a long period of time to see um, if any of them get COVID and uh, then see if any of those people that got COVID were in the group that received the experimental vaccine. In order to get statistical significance, um, you need to enroll thousands of people in these clinical trials. Because right now, even though it seems scary because in some cases, Arizona, Florida, um, Texas, uh, you're starting to see these spikes in hospitalizations and new cases um it feels like everybody's got it but the reality is only a small percentage of the population actually has it right so of these groups that are receiving these experimental vaccines you need to get so many that the actual people who will be exposed to covid um is above a certain threshold you need you can't have just one or two people in the group receiving the experimental vaccine get exposed to COVID because then you can't make any conclusions long-term about the vaccine's efficacy. Right, so it right. takes a long time to do these types of studies because you just have to get so many people and then those people in the normal course of their lives have to be exposed so that you can figure out if the vaccine protected them or not. Right. Some people have have proposed that we speed this process up by doing what are called human challenge trials. Um, that's where you take a group of low-risk people you vaccinate them and then you deliberately infect them with SARS coronavirus too. Mm. And people have proposed all sorts of ways that this can be done ethically and safely. In my opinion, I don't think it can be um, because we don't actually know what all the risk factors are. Right. And you also wanna make sure that your vaccine is going to protect the people who are at the highest risk. So a human challenge study by definition could not ethically include elderly people, people with these pre-existing medical conditions, for example, or possibly even men, because men are more likely to get severe disease and die. Um, So it, it would be very difficult to get information that could be extrapolated to the entire population by doing a study like that. So really right now we're just at the mercy of being able to roll out these vaccines in large scale phase three clinical trials and get data as quick as we can. Now, if one of those or any of these vaccines work really well, hopefully we would be able to get a a quick indication that that might be the case. And then perhaps the regulatory process um, could be sped up to approve that. Um, There are already plans in place uh, that Bill Gates has has funded as well as the NIH is um, doing so that they can rapidly move into mass production of any vaccine that happens to work. But before you want to devote resources to that, you need to make sure that one of them actually does. Right. So I think um, while it's possible we could have a vaccine before the end of the year, I think probably more likely we are not going to have a vaccine until sometime next year. Right. At the Listen,
0: earliest. Yeah, no, I, mean, I can't thank you enough. Listen, this, none of this is good news, but it is you, you are, I think for the audience we have, you're, you're helping educate folks. Uh, obviously this goes well beyond basketball Um, You know, I am somewhat relieved to hear your professional opinion that, like you said, when it comes to these playoffs and what the NBA is trying to do, that, you know, certainly nobody's saying it's foolproof or that it's going to work, but that they appear to be taking a very good stab at it and and checking as many boxes as they can. Uh, I'll make sure to pass the word on to Adam Silver that a a, a Sonics fan is trying to help the NBA and, and get a team back there one of these days. But Angela, I can't thank you enough. This was fantastic. Well, it's
1: my pleasure, Sam, and I'm happy to come back anytime. I'd I'd like to make one more point if I can. Yes, what do we got? And that is that um, one thing that I think could be very useful to come out of the NBA's uh, bubble plan is that it actually could provide a lot of really interesting epidemiological data. Um, And I do hope that uh, the players, um, their union, uh, and the NBA have perhaps thought about ways That data from this really experiment in action um, might be usable um, and, uh, you know, to to scientists that people could potentially make some conclusions about transmission uh, and pathogenesis and, you know, how much virus do you have to be exposed to to get infected, things like that. Right. Um. This uh. This unique um. Controlled environment these players are in. So there is something that the NBA players and uh, NBA staff can do to contribute to this, and that is um. By opening up uh, some of their results, I guess, from this experiment right. to the larger scientific community. And I'm no. I love. That.
0: Yeah, and no, I love the idea. And shoot, to be honest with you, I'll make sure that they hear this particular pod, and and pass that idea along. Um. So you know I I already said it before I'm fingers crossed the word nervous keeps coming to mind mm-hmm. it's such a hard balance right because it's just sports but it's business and it's livelihoods and it's it's you know it is reaching a point where every every company has its its threshold and its tipping point if if they sat on the sidelines so to speak for the next 2 3 years the the league would be decimated and and then the ripple effect therein even you know companies like ours so Um, We'll see how it goes. And I would love to have you back on one of these days. And and like I said, I'll pass that along. Thank you, Angela. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, Sam. Anytime.
0: Enjoy the beach house. Take care of yourself.
1: Will do. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.